a certain world may be what we want and what we wish for, but it is not what we need and it is not what we have. These are the opening lines from the latest book from multi-award winning author Larry Robertson. I'm delighted that Larry was able to join us on this week's TRN podcast. Um, I only had 35 minutes with Larry. I could have gone on for an hour or two. Uh, his wealth of experience, his insights into how leadership has changed and is changing during these uncertain times is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I really, really urge you to, to have a listen to him because he's got some really interesting takes on how, it, how it's evolving. It is evolving. It does require us to be slightly different as leaders and some of his nuances, some of his takes and some of his sort of suggestions based on years of experience and, re and research and, and, and working with some extraordinary businesses is, is definitely worth listening to. Uh, I loved it. Uh, I hope you enjoy it too. So I am delighted to welcome onto the TRM podcast, Larry Robertson, calling from the west of Washington. Is that right, Larry? That's correct. Good. It's definitely not definitely not the east. It's the west of of uh, Washington. So, Larry, you are a, you're an author. Uh, you're a writer and contributor to multiple leadership magazines and various magazines. Uh, you're a speaker and you're you're a consultant. Um, that's a lot of hats you, you you're wearing all the time. You were also, the really interesting thing when, when we, and thank you for joining us, by the way, I've really, I'm really been looking forward to this because of the topic of your latest book. But um, Me too, and thanks for having me. When, when I looked at your back catalogue of books, I thought it was absolutely fascinating because you've written three books uh, and you've, 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 um, you've received 18 awards and, and honours for these books, so um, you're doing something right. But the first one was almost philosophical philosophical the second one was was um the second one was all about innovation and this one's around leadership and i just i was fascinated by that sort of quite often you get writers on a certain topic but what was behind that sort of journey sure yeah it, I, I um and i'm glad you pointed that out you know it's something that i i must say I almost realized in hindsight rather than than foresight there was not this plan to do these three books but the simple story is the, the first book, which uh, was called A Deliberate Pause, focused on entrepreneurship. And after having spent more than 25 years at, at that point in time in what I think of as the entrepreneurial universe. So I was working in startups. I was uh, part of startup teams. I was investing in them, helping communities to build and all that. It, it occurred to me almost daily, people coming up to me after talks, clients pulling me aside that none of them, people who, who affiliated with entrepreneurship and considered themselves in some respects experts in it, mm. had never really explored what entrepreneurship was. They'd really never dug underneath the term, but more importantly, the book was about what is it, who's behind it, and when it has lasting impact, why does it have lasting impact? So you're right, in a sense, it was really digging back and looking not at any one organization or any one formula for how you approach building a successful organization, but what are the patterns across it, the things that are truly transferable, no matter what your specific model is. 
and what I found as I did that was that I was digging away at the layers of the onion and there was something even before that. And that was, what is it that leads an entrepreneur to want to pursue that idea, to undertake that impossible thing that, that everybody else says, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. And it really came down to our creative abilities as human beings. So the second book, The Language of Man, was about exploring what the heck is creativity in a similar way that I peeled back the, the layers on entrepreneurship. And again, to look at the broader patterns to say, not what does an artist do or not what does an entrepreneur do, but what does anyone do who is tapping their creative power? And I'm a big believer and the evidence is really strong to support it that we all have that creative capacity. It's just that most of us are out of practice or we're wrongly told we don't. So in the first step, right, to the second book, it was almost moving backwards. And this third book is that move forwards, because as you know very well, there's a huge difference between being somebody who's designated with the title of leader in an organization or being an entrepreneur and being an actual leader. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been curious about and written a lot about that leadership component and, and how does it become the effective, powerful thing we want it to be. Mm. But this new book looks at it in the context of what does that look like in an uncertain climate that's not going away? Mm. And I don't mean just the last 18 months of the pandemic. The book argues that for the last 20 years, the, the entire century to date, this has been an increasingly uncertain century and that's not gonna stop. So what does that mean for leadership in that context? And that's how those three really tie together. Okay, and just on that 20 year um, period of turbulence, because I was definitely focused on the last 18 months, but is that because of the digital rev revolution, the, 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 the pace of world uh, in which we live? Yes, that's a, it's a critical part of it. And so what I always like to peel back from the technology side is to say, that the technology is allowing more people to have more access to more knowledge all the time and to create it. So mm -hmm. the more interconnected we are, <clears throat> you know, there, <clears throat> excuse me, there are both positives and negatives to that, right? But one powerful thing is that everybody has that ability to gather and garner this information and step into their own leadership capabilities. And so instead of it being this hierarchical thing with one leader at the top who tells the rest of us what to do, every individual now is seeing that they have a role to contribute in the whole leadership undertaking. And for me, leadership is a cultural thing. It's not a title. It's not you know one person who's super smart or super skilled in one particular area. It's that person creating an environment where everybody can step up to their leadership capabilities. So tech is driving that in a lot of ways, but we're becoming more interconnected and interdependent whether or not we're talking about tech, the, the world is truly global. And mm -hmm. that that pace of change is also increasing the pace of risk and uncertainty and how we experience it. Okay, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if, let me put into context uh, our audience. Uh, we have a community of, of business leaders and, and people listening to this will be running all sorts of businesses or involved in all sorts of businesses. So our community uh, of recruitment business leaders have come through a, uh, a crazy 18 months where uh, the world stopped, uh, there was reinvention, there was innovation, and, and now actually it's sat here, there's businesses coming back, the, the economic boom is, is meaning that people are having record quarters, record months all, all the time. 
Um, so it's been a it's it's been a roller coaster, and there's been some extraordinary um, innovation and, and entrepreneurship that we've seen across our, our membership. So I love the this concept of a rebel leadership, um, focusing on the on the turbulent times. If you if you kind of sum up what the what the principles behind your sort of findings and your research and your your experiences uh, we, we'd find in the book, which comes out in July, am I right in saying the the hard copy? It, it actually book? just came out this week on Tuesday, okay. so it's available now. It's available now. perfect time. So um, so so yeah. So what are the under, un, underlying principles of the uh, from everything you've you've packed into the book? Sure, I'd be I'd be happy to share that, and and I'll begin by saying this. So. You know, the members of your network have a wonderful advantage, and, and it really has two parts. This, this is in, in my view of it. One is they have come to this network and chosen to join it, which to me is an acknowledgement of leading in these times is not only difficult, but we can't do it alone. So the second part of the advantage they have in my mind is that they're actually listening to one another in the sense of realizing that other people are not only experiencing the same things, the same challenging things, but are experiencing them in a variety of ways. And therefore there are a variety of ways to address and turn those, those challenges into opportunities. Mm -hmm. That's not the norm as, as you know. And I think this is worth reminding even a, a sensitized and smart audience like yours that, that, that not everybody understands that what we've just gone through isn't over. We're not automatically going to return to a new normal. So McKinsey just put out a research report just last month, and they said this, and I think this is worth remembering, that while the world is undergoing increasing, rapid, unpredictable, and unprecedented change across industries, most companies have remained persistently focused on the near term and the medium term with the assumption that ongoing smooth business conditions are returning or will return. So I say that because that assumption is a false assumption. It's a, it's a one we hope for, but it's a false assumption. So the principles of the book look at organizations who don't make that assumption. They are in fact embracing the fact this, that this uncertainty is gonna stay and looks at the patterns across them to say, well, what are they doing to thrive in these times? Mm. And a lot of it, in fact, virtually all of it comes down to people. So I think this is critically important when you think about, you know, recruiting people to your organization, people as one of your primary assets. What does that really mean? And the very first of the five lessons of rebel leadership was, well, first of all, what does it mean to you individually as a leader? Where are you? What is your identity in what you do? But importantly, not just who you are, who are you in the context of what you do and how that impacts others. And so these leaders are saying, without the knowledge of that, it's like sailing a ship without a tiller, right? You're just, you're, you're kind of beholden to wherever the wind takes you. <clears throat> I call that soul matters most. The second principle is recognizing- Can I, can I, can I question? I'm, I'm fascinated. So, so and, and is your view that generally with all your experience of working with entrepreneurs over the years, as well as big corporates, is your experience that entrepreneurs are, are good at really, um, what's the expression, are, are challenging themselves and, and reflecting on themselves in, in terms of working out the person they need to be a little bit further down the line, or, or are they naturally slightly shorter term individuals? Is it, is That's a really, really great question. So the way I would answer it is to say the best entrepreneurs the ones that, that create lasting value, 
the ones that cultivate others' ability to create lasting value are the first one you said. They, are, they have a better sense, not just of their idea or how to make their business successful or of the opportunity in the market. They have a sense of themselves in all of that that goes beyond the bottom line. It says, why, why am I doing this in the first place? Why am I the person to do it? Why am I committing at the level that an entrepreneur does? It, you know, mm -hmm. the, the definition of, of entrepreneurship is to undertake. It says nothing about business. It's to undertake in a way that you feel what you're doing is so important that you actually make yourself a surety or a guarantee that you will see it through. That requires something bigger than money. And what these leaders are saying to the person is it what it requires is a sense of soul of your identity in the context of what you do. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And that ripples very quickly to the second insight, which is that leadership moves, that that factor of who you are in the context of what you do applies to everybody in an organization now, or that you recruit, or when you merge together with another organization, all of those people have that same sense and need to know where they fit in a, in a larger picture. They don't always take the time to look at it. They're not always given the environment to make it happen within their organization, but when they are, it's a huge X factor for these organizations. The reason most leaders hesitate to let leadership move in the true sense is they're afraid things are just gonna get out of control. And that's where shared purpose comes in. And there's, as you know, there's a lot of talk about the power of shared purpose, but most organizations, it's not doing much for them. And the key reason is there's a difference between saying, declaring, this is our shared purpose and making it operative, actually attending to it, applying it to every decision every day by every person. So the second big lesson of the book is, you know, this whole idea of identity has a larger application to the whole organization and to leadership cultures. And, and that, yeah. And when you say leadership, you use the expression leadership move. move. Yes. Is that talking about driving leadership right down to the front line um, across the organization? So we've got leaders everywhere. Is that is that? It absolutely is. And, and the clarifier I'll put there is, you know, we tend to think of when we talk about who the leader is, we think of her title or her skill set or her longevity in a, in a business or something like that. I'm not talking about any of that. Mm. I'm talking about this natural ability of people to suss out when something is wrong or doesn't fit or to realize where there's an opportunity. But if you look at most organizations, especially as they get larger, we don't really create an environment where people are encouraged to bring those natural senses to the forefront, to mm -hmm. talk about them out loud, to test them, even to uh, stumble a little bit when they try them. Mm -hmm. But when we do that as a culture, it actually makes the organization far more powerful. You know, there's a, um, there's a sense among many leaders to say, well, you know, if I do that, it's like I'm about to step off a cliff, opening this up to everybody there. The actual experience is more like stepping off a curb. So it's really that fear of allowing leadership to permeate a culture that seems much larger than the actual action that, that leads to huge value improvement. Mm -hmm. But presumably if you don't do that, if you don't step off the curb, then there's a continued over-reliance on you, must be. Yeah, there's no question. And so if, if, you, if you buy the fact that we live in an uncertain environment and that that's gonna continue, and you know, if we had more time, I, I could list you all the stats that prove that out and all the recognition that leaders have quietly anonymously that it's happening 
if you if you buy into that uncertainty is going to continue, what you quickly realize is it, it is never going to be a one person solution. Mm. So even if you're the leader at the top, even if you have a lot of the, the, the best skills and the brilliant ideas, you cannot possibly be the answer in every situation. Mm. And so this whole idea of leadership moving is looking around and saying, these people are, I have around me, why are they here? Are they really here just to fill a job description? Are they really here just to execute on orders? And I would argue that no, every single one of them is a powerful asset with power beyond what we typically tap. Mm. And so allowing them to participate in that broader definition of leadership is really a way of getting the most out of your assets. Mm. Okay, definitely, yeah. No, love it, love it, love it. And I'm gonna come on later to how we get that culture. But um, so that's number, um, well, that's number two. Yep. Uh, so the, the third, we're, we're kind of in it. The third lesson of, of rebel leadership is it's the culture, stupid. Okay. And it's really a way of saying, we all know culture is important. Uh, we all say culture is important, but typically our, uh, our actual acts and our execution don't prove that we believe culture is important. So they, you know, they do surveys all the time where they'll survey not just senior leaders, but middle managers and, and the rest of the employees. And every one of those groups, when asked if culture is important, they're off the charts, you know, that the senior leaders, it's in the 90th percentiles, right? And, and in the high 80s for, for everybody else in the organization. But then when you ask, especially middle managers and the rest of the organization, do we actually follow that? Can I actually see the culture in my day-to-day -day work? Do I see my senior leaders prioritizing it? It doesn't match up with what we say is the importance. In fact, they say there's a very, very low association. And I think part of the reason is, is we continue to think of culture as an output, that mm -hmm. somehow it's just gonna, it's just gonna happen if we say we're good people, if we say these are our values, that one day they'll just materialize. And the mm -hmm. truth is that that's not true at all. That culture is not only hard work, but when we put the work into it to say, this is our priority, this is the leading thing and everything else follows. And when we recognize that it's our chief competitive asset in an uncertain world, that's when we really recognize culture. So um, I asked everybody that I interviewed for the new book, what, you know, what's your definition of culture? And one of the most powerful definitions came from Russell Schaefer. He's the senior director of um, global culture, diversity and inclusion at Walmart. And he, he, this is what he said, culture is the things that we do, the things that we're doing right now, not did, not will do or aspire to, but our words and values in action in this moment. And if you think mm. about that, if that's how you use culture, if it's your litmus test for whether or not you're actually realizing it, and then if you empower everybody in the organization to be part of that conversation and part of shaping culture, that's when we realize, I mean, actually attain the power and culture that everybody knows is there. So that's the third of the three ideas. So, so that, if we can just grab a couple of minutes on that, because this, this, uh, I, I, uh, you know, I remember my, from my own experience, we were building a business uh, back in the 90s and, and we had a very successful, grew it to be biggest privately owned in our space in the UK I went I thought I got culture and then I went across to the states and spent three weeks just spending a bit of time with some of the world's best people at the southwest and the uh, Scandinavian hospitals uh, Stu Leonard's uh, all, all those great names that have been sort of uh, pioneers for how to run a great business and a service-led led business 
it was only when I got involved in those businesses and went into them and smelt them and breathed the culture that I realized there's, there's culture and then there's culture. So the, 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 the culture which, which can be so powerful to make you a, a great place to hang out and a great place to go and work for, so powerful commercially, that was, that was the moment, even though I'd read the books and I'd kind of, I thought we were quite good at it, that sure. was my big eye-opener. So I can go to most, most business leaders and say, does culture matter? And they'll say, yeah, it matters. The, the kind of light bulb moment that said, wow, if we can take, take it to the next step, which I guess is in, in, in your third piece, if we can take it to the next step, you can't replicate it, you can't copy it, it's unique to us, and we've got something that is so powerful. So what's, what stops a, a lot of entrepreneurs from taking the leap to the, to the truly wonderful culture? Yeah, it's so <clears throat> interesting too. You were talking about uh, your own experience in visiting those companies in the 1990s, right? Which I think is really an interesting time marker because, and I'm, and I'm gonna just work in broad brushstrokes for a second here, but that was a time when you would see these outstanding cultures like Southwest Airlines you, you mentioned. And we would all look at that and say, wow, isn't that great? But I can't do that in my own organization. And we would go one step further. We would say, isn't that great? That would be nice but I don't need to do that to keep the bottom line moving. And so what I would suggest is where that once was uh, a luxury or a wise investment, today it's a necessity. Mm. Because if the environment is changing so rapidly and in unpredictable ways, and you haven't made that investment in culture, then you've lowered your odds of being able to adapt to whatever the next challenge is in your actual day-to-day -day business and your business mm -hmm. model. So why in the past did leaders not embrace that? Why right now do they not embrace that? I mean, the simple answer is fear. Mm -hmm. And part of the fear comes from the individual because we are, we are taught across the world from a very young age with, you know, it starts with a teacher standing in front of a classroom and then it <clears throat> rolls into professors standing in front of you in lecture halls in college. Then you're trained this way when you come into organizations. We think and we're told that the leader is the individual who has all the answers, that they will direct us, they will pull us out of whatever problems we're in, they'll find the next opportunity. That's a huge weight. And so any individual leader who's thinking, I, I need to do something more dramatic here. I need to change in a more significant way. What's floating in the back of their head is, if I do that, I'm letting go of what I know, even if what I know is ineffectual. If I let go of it, I'm going to something that feels unknown and also feels a little too wild for me. And that fear is the biggest factor that, that holds people back. I, the second one, second thing to realize is that there are really three things that drive adaptive cultures these days and have for at least the last 20 years. I'd argue it goes further, further back. And if you look at Southwest, it's a perfect example. Those three things are the recognition that everything is a co-creation that there isn't one individual, whether they're at the top or they're the lead of the, you know, the innovation lab in the organization, there's never one individual who actually uh, enables the organization to realize something. The second thing is that everything that is innovative, everything that allows us to, uh, to adapt is inquiry driven. So we tend as organizations to think in statements. This is the company we are. These are the products we make. This is why we do it. Rather than to think in questions that, that force us to say, 
Is what we're doing still lining up with our assumptions about the market? Is it pursuing the opportunities that are real now versus were real 12 months ago? So this whole idea of bringing inquiry regularly into a culture is something we don't think about a whole lot. And the third and final piece that really makes cultures powerful is diversity. And the thing that I'm talking about when I say diversity is it's like an intellectual diversity. It's the diversity of your background. It's the diversity of your experiences. It's the diversity of the way you look at and solve problems. Mm -hmm. So we may have that in the people across our organizations, but we don't ask those different ideas and different ways of looking at things, those people to come together and interact and solve in that way. And why don't we do that? We're afraid there'll be conflict. So this kind of comes back to, we're fearful of a loss of control, even if we have a model right now, that's really not giving us much control. Mm. Well, well, one question before we move on to number four, you talked sure. about, and again, it's, it's a language that we don't really use this side of the pond, but an inquiry led, um, what do you mean by that? I, I just really want to make sure we, I understand that. Sure. Let me let me um, answer that by giving you a quick example. So for my second book, The Language of Man, I interviewed lots of MacArthur fellows. They're the winners of the so-called Genius Award for Creativity. And one of them was an education reformer by the name of Deb Meyer. And Deb, you know, comes in and she's building new models for schools or she's taking schools that are in the toilet and raising them up again. Very, very challenging projects. Mm -hmm. And the way she runs each one of those projects, in fact, the way they run their meetings day to day, even how they bring in new people, even when people go out, is by a method she calls the five habits of the mind. And the five habits of the mind are five questions that they continue to put at the forefront. And they're really simple. The first is, how do we know what we know? It's a check-in on your assumptions. The second is, is there a pattern? Because sometimes when we ask what we know, there's an anomaly, but we don't wanna chase that until it's a pattern that has you know, some kind of substance to it. So how do we know what we know? Is there a pattern followed by always some form of the question, what if? What if given what we know and given the pattern, we pursue solving that problem this way or that idea? So what if is, is the third question. The fourth question is, is there another way? And this is the idea of almost revisiting the first three, but to say, let's not fall in love with our idea too quickly or our quick answer. There are always other ways. Are we taking a full 360 degree view of it? So how do we know what we know? Is there a pattern? What if? Is there another way? And then the final question, which is shockingly not asked enough in any organization, who cares? Because all the things that we can develop, all the skills that we have, if we don't know who we're aiming it at, not just where, but who we're aiming it at, and whether or not, you know, to be perfectly blunt, they give a damn, mm. it's all irrelevant. So what Deb is saying is it's not just those questions, it's allowing those to be part of every pursuit and every discussion by every person in the organization. That's what embeds inquiry. And mm. what's really interesting about this too, Gordon, is once you are playing with inquiry all the time, change feels a lot less threatening. Mm. Letting mm. other people lead feels a lot less threatening because you're letting, you're seeing how they operate. You're letting them play with ideas in real time and not always in the most dramatic and impactful situations. I mean, it's just day-to-day -day interactions. So you're actually raising creativity and lowering risk by allowing inquiry to be a constant part of what you do. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's, it's all about a question-led approach to, yeah. 
That's um, right. The, the second, the second best uh, football, football soccer coach in uh, in the U, U, England is uh, called Pep, Pep, Pep Guardiola, and he talks about it's far more important to work out what question you need to ask than it is to come up with the right answer. But that's yeah, totally um, agree. So number number four then uh, in rebel leadership. Yes. So number four is find your power source and make it your superpower. What I mean by a power source is, and, and I'll just skim the surface here. We're not talking about a mission statement. We're not talking about a purpose. We're not talking about your strategic plan. We're talking about something deeper that drives it all. And I'll, I'll give you another quick story to tell you where this idea came from. Peter Drucker used to have a test that he would give companies, either when he was doing research on his own or when people would ask him, you know, is this company ready to grow to the next level? Will they continue in this competitive environment? And it was a simple question, shocker. The question was, what business are you in? The difference with Drucker is he would say, I want you to ask that question five layers deep. So whatever your first answer is, take that and say, yeah, that's great. We're, you know, we're in the, the soda pop business or whatever it might be. Go layer, go layer by layer down to the fifth layer. And what his belief was, and actually this pulls off an old Toyota habit in the 80s of, of asking the five layers of why, that the deeper you go, and you only need to go that many layers deep, you get to the true power source mm. of what drives you day to day. So when used by other companies, and, and uh, it was used by Airbnb, this, this method, just to give you an example, their power source was we are a company that is about belonging anywhere. So it's a really interesting concept because, you know, if you look at them on the surface, they're in the hospitality business. Mm -hmm. You could even say they're in the hotel zone of business. Yeah. And what they say is, no, we're in the business of ensuring that people belong anywhere, not just guests, not just hosts, but our employees, our partners, and everybody else. And if we take that power source and we infuse it into everything we do, we use it as a check, but also a point of leverage, we actually make ourselves more powerful overall, no matter what our business model is or who is part of our business model to make it succeed. And you can see this across mm -hmm. company after company. It's not just that they, they come up with what their power source is, but they use it as a strategic weapon. So, so once you establish your power source, then, then as a leader, that allows you to align your investment, your activity, your energy to making that, that power source even more powerful, presumably. Yeah? Correct. And, and if you continue to come back and check that whatever you're doing is tied to that in some way, that mm. it's leveraging that and it's serving that, then it is truly powerful. You don't mm. do that. It's just words. Yeah, no, love it, love it. Um, and number five. Number five and final. Um, number five is the long view matters right now. So this is this, this idea that every individual, every organization to, you know, to varying degrees has some sense of where they want to arrive in the future. Why, why they exist in the first place, what their aspirations are. But most organizations and most leaders, most of the time table that. I'll get to that later. We'll get there someday, but I have these fires to fight right now. But if you look at these organizations that are truly thriving in these uncertain times, they're doing just the opposites. They're saying, if that long view is what matters now, then it needs to be in infused and incorporated into everything we're doing today. And one of the best examples of that, um, and this took place almost a decade ago now, was Google. Google was you know, 10 years ago at the top of their, their game. 
and uh, no reason to really look at their model and say, gee, are, are we failing or how could we be better? I mean, they were just mm -hmm. kicking everybody's butt out there. But they started this project they called Project Oxygen to say, are we really succeeding for the reasons we think we are? Are the ways in which we're succeeding today, or at least how we think about it, is that going to get us to where we want to go tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And what they found was, and I'll just oversimplify it, where they thought that their technical skills, their engineering staff, um, that department was really the most important thing to their business because they're a tech company. It turned out that that came in absolutely at the bottom, dead last in importance. And the importance was the ability of certain individuals in the organization to build teams, to communicate, to uh, encourage others to take risks without penalties, not just on the tech side, but in the accounting department, in the marketing department, across the whole organization. And it completely flipped Google's view of why they were successful. And mm. so important was it that they went in and they started to change how they hired people, how they trained people, how they allowed them to grow within the organization, um, how they judged the, the quality and value of projects. They even started another project called Project Aristotle to dig deeper and say, how can we reshape ourselves so that the future, the long view matters right now? Okay. And their their but their long long view in terms of the interdependence of the people and and the way they they all contributed was that that was part of their vision of success down the line. Um, so it's interesting. Their their vision of success was, and I'm I'm not using their words. I'm just kind of paraphrasing. We want to continue to be the top tech giant on the globe. Okay. That's what they were talking about. So the, the way they thought they could get there was, well, we have the top technical skills. The real answer was, no, we need people and we need interaction between those people that emphasize what some people would call these soft skills, but these skills that are so critical to adaptability. Adaptability, what they realized was the key, the tech came in behind that. The tech was the delivery thing at the end that we all focus on. Remember, it's like culture. We think about the output. It'll mm. just happen someday. Mm. But what they realized was that the key components to making that the output someday were different than what they thought. Love it, love it. And do you, do you your experience in terms of entrepreneurs and the clarity of, of what they're trying to build, what they're aspiring to build their ambition, is it as clear as it needs to be, or just generally? Um, so I'm going to answer that question saying, no, it never is. But the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones that realize that. And so they're continuing to check back in with how do I know what I know, you know, mm -hmm. and, and is the pattern that I'm creating the pattern that I need to create to continue to be successful over the long term. So this kind of comes full circle to the comment I made at the beginning. Being an entrepreneur, being the person who founded the organization, being the person who has the top title, maybe the top shareholder in the organization, that does not make you a leader. A leader is something quite different. So it's that evolution into those skills that make you an effective leader. And, and to me, an effective leader is somebody who creates the environment in which mm. all boats rise on the tide, right? Everybody can invest in being a part of the leadership solution. That's what really makes a good leader. And not every entrepreneur is cut out for that. And certainly most don't begin with a recognition that there's a difference between the two. Those who do recognize it and those who evolve into the role of leader and really sometimes beyond where they, they evolve out of the role of leader uh, and empower others, those tend to be the most successful ones over time. No, I love it. I, you know, and as you're talking, I was thinking of uh, 
entrepreneurs and members of ours. And I was just asking the question about from the personal development priorities that they have, how many of them actually are focused on what we're talking about, what you're talking about in your book, as opposed to maybe some of the shorter term, uh, let's get this over, let's get this over the line, over the line. Sure, and if you think about it, I mean, it's it's like that um, McKinsey data that I that I put out there. Um, they may think that they're focused on this bigger picture, but when you look at their actual actions day to day, their goals, even the conversations they have in their you know daily or weekly mm. meeting with their team, they're really focused on that near term and that medium term. Mm. And they're assuming we are going to return to what we once called normal. So those two things, it's not to say short and medium term things don't need attention. They absolutely do. But the lack of attention to that bigger picture, that long-term picture, and the fact that we aren't going to return to the old, old normal, that we actually live in a new abnormal, that's mm. missing still from the vast majority of organizations, even the ones that are doing well right now. But you know, the thing is, um, Deloitte did a study and they said, what are the trends as we come out of this pandemic and, and back you know, into the office if we're coming back and where we're going next, right? And one of the key things they said is that the, the landscape is going to stay dynamic. It is going to continue to change. And the only reason that we don't realize that is that we see this shift in where our productivity is suddenly going up right now. And we look at that and say, oh my gosh, that means our model is right. We're on the right track and whatever. What it's masking over is that we have an exhausted workforce. They've been working so hard just to get through the pandemic. Now they're being asked to work into the transition. And yes, they're productive in this moment, but they're so spent from the last moment that they're less prepared to go forward than we think. And these mm. things we've been talking about today and exploring those actually reveal not just where they're exhausted, but how to help them become energized again, how to help them rise to the next level of challenge if we pay attention to them. Mm. Sorry, I could carry on this conversation and uh, I absolutely love it. And, and I, it's really got, my, uh, got me thinking about a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, but the first thing I'm going to do, because I thought I had to wait till July, I'm going to I'm going to jump onto Amazon and buy your book. Uh, I can't wait. It is available in, in Kindle already, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah. I, I like a hard copy of these sort of books, so I can scribble over it. That's very exciting, and I wish you every success with the book. Uh, so, and two other last questions for you. Um, just any organization or individual in the world of business that's particularly inspiring you at the moment? Yeah, I, I'm going to give you two. Um, so I, what Satya Nadala is doing at Microsoft and has done over the last seven years, um, he calls it embracing the growth mindset for an entire organization and not just an individual. I, I would highly recommend to your network that they don't just read the headlines. Look at what they're doing. Look at what the experience is that they're going through because it's a teachable moment. It's almost like they're making the mistakes for you and telling you what's working and what's not and why. And they're making all of that research available to everyone, it, it, warts and all. So that's one organization that, that I find really, really inspirational. Mm -hmm. And then one that's kind of on the edges that most people don't know about is the um, production and retail company founded by Reese Witherspoon. It's called Hello Sunshine. They are reinventing what it means to be a production company 
or a book retailer or a clothing retailer and seeing all of that as about storytelling. How do we empower our audience to tell their own stories? And it's a great example of a power source that they're turning into a superpower. So kind of a one to watch. Love it, love it. Now, I, I'd quite often ask you a book you recommend, but I'm not going to ask you that because I'm going to recommend everybody buys Rebel Leadership. I love, <laughs> Thank I you. love what you've been saying. So I'm cancelling that one. Is the one individual that I should get on this podcast that maybe you know and can uh, introduce me to? Because I'd love to speak to some, uh, some of your network. Oh, my gosh. Um, I will certainly send you a list, but I will tell you that you've already had one individual on your podcast that you know, if people haven't listened to your podcast with Leo Batari, they should. Um, but more than that, you should really dig into Leo's work because it's about peers, what he calls peer innovation and the power of peers. And it's it's really powerful stuff. It's also very straightforward. It is, yeah. I lo love to love to stuff. No, thank you. Um, Larry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the TRM podcast. Um, I'm um, and I can't wait to get into your book. No, thank out. you. No. It's been a it's been a pleasure for me too. I, I really um, thank you for the privilege and thank your audience for the privilege of of listening to our conversation. Fantastic. Have a great rest of the day. You as well, Gordon. <laughs>